thank you, Joey and Debbie, for leading us. This morning, as Marshall said, I'm going to be sharing from Hebrews 11 and actually a little bit of Hebrews 12. And so I don't have to call out verbally every time I'm changing from stories to scripture. I'm just going to do this. If I have this staff over on my left side, then I'll be doing my best to reproduce for you the new international version of Hebrews 11 and 12. But if it's anywhere else, then that's just me talking. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're one of the first two people ever born. Now, if you're thinking, they weren't really born, Bill, they were created. Well, you're not thinking about the same two people I am. Your parents will forever be known as two people who had one rule to follow and couldn't manage it. Now, to be fair, I'm pretty sure none of us could have managed it either. But because of their sin, you've never lived in paradise. You've lived under the curse. You've had to work for your living, grow your food. And yet in spite of that sin and your parents' ejection from Eden, they've raised you to love and honor and respect, and even fear God. So when the time comes for the offering, you're ready. You go out in your field, you gather the required amount, you bundle it, you put it over your shoulder, and you head down to the place of sacrifice. And as you're going, you look over on the adjacent hill, and there you see your brother also getting ready. You watch as he calls himself his favorite lamb. He calls it by name. It's called the, he's named all his animals. So when that lamb skips happily up to him, the perfect one with no blemish anywhere, you watch as he cups his face in his hand and explains to it how it's going to honor God that day. He puts it on his shoulder. You watch as he goes to the next field and repeats the same procedure with his favorite calf explaining how it's going to honor God. With it on the other shoulder, he heads down to the place of worship and sacrifice with you. You meet there at the place of sacrifice. You prepare your sacrifices, you begin the offering, and then God shows up. And you listen as he tells your brother how much he likes his offering, how sweet it smells in his nostrils, how it honors him. And you think to yourself, can't wait till it's my turn. God says nice things to me. But then he doesn't. He doesn't say your sacrifice is bad. 
He just doesn't go on about it like he goes on about your brothers. And that kind of wrinkles a little bit. You start to get angry. Now, you're too smart to get angry at God. So you get angry at your brother. You hide it. You cover up your anger. When the offering is done, you invite him to go for a walk with you out in your field. When you get out into the field, you suddenly and without warning and ferociously fall on him and kill him. Scratch out a hole in the soil, put his body in the hole and cover it up. And then you try to go on as though nothing had happened. A little while later, God comes to you. And he asks you a question very much like the one that he asked your father. But instead of saying, where are you? He says, where is your brother? You answer with the first instance of one of the more lame excuses known to man. It's not my job. Not my day to keep up with him. You say, am I my brother's keeper? And God, who knew the answer to the question, just as he knew the answer to the question he asked your father, says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Now, the first thing little four-year-old Julie did when she woke up that morning was look over at the chair beside her bed. And what she saw there put a huge smile on her face because she saw that her mother had laid out her prettiest dress, the lacy socks, saddle oxfords, and a pink ribbon for her hair. And all that meant that today was church day. And Julie loved to go to church. So she hopped out of bed and hurriedly dressed, carried the pink ribbon downstairs for her mother to put in her hair, rushed through her breakfast, and then waited impatiently while the rest of the family got ready for church. When they got to where their church met, she skipped happily off to children's church, waving goodbye to her parents. After big church was over, when her parents came to pick her up, she was practically hopping from foot to foot in excitement. And her mother said, just wait, Julie. Julie said, but it's a good one, Mommy. She said, be patient. When they got home, the smell of the roast that her mother had put on before they left had filled the house. And as her mom went to fix some biscuits and vegetables, Julie got the plates and cutlery and glasses and napkins and set the table. When the food was on the table and they'd all sat down and her father had asked the blessing, Julie looked expectantly at her mother. And her mother said, okay, Julie, what did you learn in church today? And Julie said, Mommy, this is so good. We learned about a man who went for walks with God. And they walked and they talked. They talked about what God wanted to talk about. And they talked about what the man wanted to talk about. And they had such a great time. And her mother said, well, that's really nice, Julie. What was his name? And her little face clouded. And she said, I can't remember his name, Mommy. And her mom said, well, that's okay. Just tell us a little more. She said, well, they would go for these long walks, and I remember they talked about what God wanted to talk about, and they both liked it a lot, and they talked about what the man wanted to talk about. 
And her mother said, well, maybe it was David. David was a man after God's own heart. She said, no, I don't think it was David. Her father said, was it Jesus? Jesus went out in the mornings to pray. Daddy, I would remember if it was Jesus. Her mom said, just tell a little more. She said, well, one day they went for this really long walk. And they were talking about all the things they'd like to talk about. And before the man knew it, they were a long, long way from his house. And it was getting late. When he said something to God about it, God said, why don't you just come along to my house? By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. You ever wonder about that phrase, things not yet seen? What things? I do. I wonder about it. I've heard preachers say, well, the environment was different at that time. It had never rained. Things were, the crops were watered by humidity, the dew. And that could be. Last fall, my wife Pat and I had an opportunity to go to the Ark Encounter there in Kentucky and up to the Creation Museum after that. And the whole time we were there, I was looking at the exhibits and talking to the people who work there and asking them, what do you think the things not yet seen were? What was it that hadn't been seen or experienced by people? I really didn't get a lot of satisfaction. We went up to the Creation Museum and there we met Bodie Hodge, Ken Ham's son-in-law, the two of them have co-written a book called The Flood of Evidence. They studied the flood extensively. And so while he was autographing our book, I said, Bodie, do you have any idea what the things not yet seen in Hebrews 11 are? He said, I, I think it was a worldwide flood. I think there'd never been a worldwide flood. And that makes sense, too. To be honest, till this day, I still have no idea exactly what the things not yet seen are. But I have concluded that it doesn't really matter to me. What matters is that God went to Noah and he gave him an incredibly hard task to do. And when Noah heard it, he didn't blink. He went straight to it, even though the explanation for why he should do that was something outside of the realm of human experience. He had faith, he trusted God, and he did it. By faith, Noah... When warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. I have to tell you, it's, it's pretty tempting to stop right here and tell a story about men who leave home not knowing where they're going, speculate as to whether or not Abraham asked for directions. But, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to do Abraham a little later. 
By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. One day, Sarah, Abraham's wife, was working inside their family tent. Abraham was sitting in the entrance. It was the heat of the day. He was sitting there in the shade of the entrance to the tent. When he looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. And being a hospitable man, he immediately went over and invited them to come and to sit and to eat and drink and to talk for a while. They agreed. Abraham asked Sarah, would you make some bread? And then he ran off himself to find a choice calf to prepare for them. He gave the calf to a servant to prepare, and he went and got some milk and some curds. And when everything was assembled, they sat down to eat and talk. Now Sarah continued working inside the tent and listening as the men talked. They talked for quite a while, and then one of the men, with his back to the door of the tent, asked Abraham, Where is your wife? And Abraham said, she's there in the tent. And the man said, I'll come back next year about this time, and Sarah will have borne a son. Now, Sarah was 90 years old. It had been 13 years since her attempt to help God fulfill his promise to Abraham had ended in what for her was a personal disaster. And so when she heard this man say, Sarah will have a son, she was pretty surprised. And she laughed to herself. And she thought, in today's vernacular, seriously, now? After I'm old and worn out and past the time of childbearing, now I get the pleasure of having a son? But she didn't say any of those things. She thought them. Even the laugh was silent because she was too gracious to embarrass herself or anyone else. And so she was very surprised when the man with his back to the tent said, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And she was afraid. And so she lied. She called out, I didn't laugh. And the man said, oh, but you did. And I will return in a year, and Sarah will have born a son. I think that's when Sarah began to appreciate that this was no ordinary man, and that he knew things. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners, and strangers on earth. 
People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, Several years later, Abraham was out in his vineyard working. And God came to him again and gave him a task which was arguably harder than Noah's task. But like Noah, he didn't hesitate. He set right about it. He went home. He collected a bunch of wood. He got two servants to help carry the wood And he got his son, Isaac, who had now grown up. And they began a three-day journey to the mountain where they made sacrifices. After two days, they were at the foot of the mountain. Abraham asked the servants to wait there. Isaac picked up the wood, and they began their ascent. And on the way up, Isaac was confused. And he said to Abraham, Father... Here is the wood for the burnt offering, but where is the lamb? And Abraham, I'm sure with a heavy heart, said, God will provide the sacrifice. So they got to the place of the offering. Abraham took some of the wood and built an altar and put the rest of the wood on top. And then he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar. And as he raised the knife to kill his own son, the son that God had told him was the one who was going to be the one those generations of people came through. As he raised the knife, the angel of the Lord appeared and spoke to him and said, Abraham, don't touch Isaac. And there behind him, caught in a thicket by its horns, in such a way that it would not be damaged and still be good for sacrifice, was a ram. So Abraham took Isaac down off the altar, unbound him, and together they sacrificed the ram to God, and then they went home rejoicing. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. 
By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they did not fear the king's edict. The woman named Bitya sat in the bedchamber in the palace and looked out the window down the colonnade where she had watched her son play so often when he was growing up. He would hide behind the columns and jump out and surprise people. He'd speak to the soldiers who were there at the palace. Everyone loved him. She felt that he had helped her to know a mother's love in two ways. One was experientially. Even though he was not a son born to her, she felt that love that a mother feels for her son ever since she took him on, brought him into her household. But she also learned a mother's love by observation because the slave girl who had gone to get a nurse to nurse the baby had brought a woman to her who, when soon as she looked at that boy, Bitya knew that was a mother's love. They never spoke about it, but she knew, and she was pretty sure the nursemaid knew she knew. And as she watched that child grow up, her love just grew and grew. But now, he was facing a crisis. He was all grown up, and something had happened that would challenge his acceptance of her as a mother and her people as his people. And so she watched down that colonnade to see if she could catch a glimpse of her son and know whether he was staying or leaving. She heard the angry voices even before she saw anything. And then she saw her son come into view and she hoped against hope that he would turn toward her. But instead, he turned away and went off into the desert. And that was when she knew that he would never again return to that palace as her son. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Where is that woman? I've got to find her. She knows what's going on. These Israelites, we heard they were coming. 
We geared up. We got soldiers up on the walls. We have sentries looking out. And when they came, what did they do? Nothing. All week, they have walked around our walls. None of them said a word. They've been blowing horns and walking. Every day, once around the city and then back to their camp. What is that? I have got to find this woman. She knows what's going on. And the reason she knows is we saw their spies. We knew they were. Two strange men right after the Israelites had come toward us. These men came into our city. And then they disappeared into her house. Now, that wasn't unusual. There were lots of men who disappeared into her house. These had never come back out. By the time we went and knocked on her door and confronted her, there was no one there. She told us something about them going out down the road. But we looked for them for three days and never found them. But today, today they won't stop walking around the city. I don't know what's going on, but I know she does. And so I've got to find her. Her home is right over there. And what is this? Wait, now they're, now they're shouting. They're blowing those horns. The soldiers are falling off the walls. They're, they're, the walls are... Wait, that section's not falling. That's where her house is. I've got to find it. Oh, all is lost. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Harold Warner had been around basketball for over 50 years. 
beginning when he was just a little guy and could barely walk, bouncing the basketball in the family driveway and looking up at that goal that seemed so unattainable. He played on youth teams and church teams and rec leagues and traveling teams, played for his middle school. He was a standout at his high school, and he was recruited to play point guard for the Bridgeton Bearcats. Now at Bridgeton, he started all four years. He was an All-American for three of them and three times led his team to the state championship. As graduation approached, he was offered a position as an assistant on the team, which he happily accepted. And seven years later, when the head coach retired, Harold Warner became head coach of the Bridgeton Bearcats, a position that he'd held now for a little over 25 years. And in all those 50 years of playing basketball and coaching basketball, Harold had never seen a team that was as strong as the one they were facing tonight. He'd never played against such a team. He'd never coached against such a team. He'd never even heard of a team as strong as this one. They were well-conditioned. They were talented. They were well-coached. They had a great game plan. They were a force to be reckoned with. And he'd seen this coming. Harold was a student of the game. Not just the history, not just the great players and the great coaches, not just the great teams. He was a student of the strategies and the tactics of basketball. He was a student of the players and coaches around him. And he'd watched this coach of the opposing team develop. He'd seen him learn how to bring players along, make the most of their talents. He'd seen him learn how to condition players, how to put together a great game plan, how to adjust during a game. And that team had sailed through the regular season, winning all their games and easily making their way to the championship game tonight through the playoffs. Now, the Bearcats were no slouches. He had kind of an odd roster. He had... Veterans who'd played for him for four years, and he had rookies, brand new to him that year, nothing in between. And he'd chosen a little bit different coaching strategy that year. He played the veterans most of the time, and he practiced the rookies separately from the veterans. The veterans would practice the plays they were going to use and the game plan they were going to follow. And in the first part of the week, he would teach the rookies something about the offenses that their upcoming opponent was likely to employ and the defenses. And then he would scrimmage the two together so that the veterans got a chance to play against the kinds of offenses and defenses they were likely to see in the game. And that strategy had served them very well. They also had been undefeated in the regular season and made their way through the playoffs to this game that Harold Warner had seen coming three years earlier as he watched this team and his coach begin to coalesce. And in the game, his veterans had played their hearts out. They'd followed the strategy he set out for them. They'd executed the plays. They'd used their talents to the best of their ability. They'd used their conditioning. And yet, with one minute to go, they were down seven points. And so when coach called timeout, Veterans hurried over to the sideline to see what coach was going to do in the last minute of the game. 
The rookies came over from the bench, as they always did, and the fans in the stands grew silent. Many of them had played for Coach Warner. Most of them had gone to Bridgeton. They all wanted to know what Coach was going to do in this last minute. As they got together, Coach took a moment to look each of his veterans in the eye. And he said, you've done everything I asked of you. You've followed the game plan perfectly. You've executed the plays the best you can. I couldn't be more proud of you. Which is going to make what I have to say next pretty hard to hear. But we don't have a lot of time, so I just have to say it. I need you all to go to the bench. The rookies are going to finish the game. And to their credit, the veterans didn't huff and puff and demonstrate and fuss. They just walked over to the bench. There was a little bit of a murmur from the crowd when that happened because they couldn't understand why Coach would pull the veterans with a minute to go. But they trusted him. They loved their coach. Been there 25 years. He said a few more words to the rookies and then he sent them out to take the court. Well, when the opponent saw the rookies coming out to take the court, they knew what was going on. They knew that this was a classy move by a veteran coach who wanted to give his rookies a chance to say they'd played in the championship game, even though it was a loss. So they smiled and prepared to celebrate. Well, as the referee got ready to hand the ball to the point guard to inbound, the stands were still silent. And the veterans turned then to the crowd and gave them that universal sign for cheering. And they remembered themselves and they began to shout encouragement to the rookies. Come on, guys, you can do it. Trust your coach. He gives you the right thing to do. You got this. And the cheering grew and grew until pretty much the place was rocking with their cheering. When the rookie point guard inbounded the ball, it took about three seconds for the opposition to realize that this is not what they thought it was. The smiles were erased from their faces because they had never seen the kind of offense these rookies were using. They were moving the ball in ways they'd never seen happen before that they couldn't anticipate, and the rookies scored five quick points. The coach called a timeout. They tried to adjust. They came back out, and now they were facing a defense that they'd never seen and couldn't solve. Even another timeout was insufficient to help them adjust enough. And as the last second ticked off the clock, Bridgeton had won the game by four points. And the rookies ran to the sideline. The veterans came over to greet them. The fans poured down out of the stands, and they all celebrated together the victory they had all won together. These were all commended for their faith. And yet, none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us. So that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for the accounts in your word of all of these predecessors in the faith, these ancients who were commended for their faith and yet didn't receive the promise that only saw in